Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training and Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's IWMS and Cancer Care program for caregivers coping with a loved one's Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, or WM. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between uh, IWMS and Cancer Care um, and in offering this program. And also, um, we do have a number of cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well um, who are helping spread the word. But I have to say that IWMF has really done the most incredible job in spreading the word about this program. And we have on the program today over 413 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States. So you come from rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. Now, we also have quite a few um, international participants on the call. We have um, participants from Australia, Belgium, Canada, Cyprus, Denmark, France, Finland, India, Iraq, in Italy, Mexico, Netherlands, Russia, and United Kingdom. So this is quite a global call, I would say. This is amazing. And um, this activity is supported by a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceuticals companies of Johnson & Johnson, and we thank them for their support. Now, we have the best speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Mattis, and Dr. Mattis is Myeloma and Plasma Cell Program Director, Colorado Blood Cancer Institute. And uh, Dr. Mattis will be addressing what's new in the treatment of WM, tips on working with the healthcare team to manage your loved one's symptoms, side effects, and peripheral neuropathy, and caring for your loved one with WM. It's really my great privilege and honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mattis. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a real honor and pleasure to be on this call as well. And so, and I want to again recognize all the people who made this uh, call come to fruition. So I've been tasked with talking about what's new in the treatment of WM and a few other matters. And so let's talk about, first of all, treating WM. Now, the, the first thing I think is really important to point out in WM is that if, if you ha or your loved one has it, then you're in rare company. This is a 1 in 300,000 type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, so there aren't very many of you out there, relatively speaking. Uh, and so uh, that, that's one thing to, to keep in mind. The other thing to know about uh, WM is that WM occurs in phases. And so people often go through what's called a, a precursor phase before they are formally recognized to have Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, or WM. It starts off as something called a IgM monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, often called IgM MGUS. And then it also goes through what's called a smoldering phase. And then in some patients who have the smoldering phase, in fact, the majority, they end up having symptomatic WM that requires treatment. 
Now, many of people of you on this call probably are associated with someone who has what's called smoldering Waldenstroms. And so how do we distinguish smoldering Waldenstroms from symptomatic Waldenstroms? And the way we do this is pretty agreed upon uh, in the world by WM physicians. And the main uh, way for distinguishing symptomatic WM from uh, smoldering WM is by certain uh, clinical indicators. That is, the symptomatic patients usually have fatigue, anemia, sometimes sweat, sometimes enlarged lymph glands, uh, and other complications, whereas the smoldering patients basically have abnormal lab tests and Waldenstrom's in their marrow, but absolutely no problems from it whatsoever, so we call them smoldering. And the smoldering patients are observed and the symptomatic patients are treated. So when it comes to treatment of WM, uh, again, it's only for those symptomatic patients. The good news is, is that we have great treatment for Waldenstrom's these days. And when I see someone who has Waldenstrom's, the major discussion I end up having with them is whether or not they are candidates for what I term fixed duration treatment, that is, duration, that is treatment given over a certain period of time and then stopped, or continuous therapy. And continuous therapy is normally oral therapy, and usually the uh, what we call the BTK inhibitors, such as ibrutinib, that are given long-term with the expectation that it will be taken for a very long time. And so that's the major decision I have with patients. And physicians have their own biases, and patients have their own biases regarding that. The other thing I always tell my patients is that when you're talking about treatment, make sure that you're considering clinical trials. And it's it's a good idea sometimes to consider second opinions and to educate yourself as much as you can through what the IWMF has to offer. There's amazing information available through the IWMF and very different uh, types of forums. The good news is that standard treatments work very well for the great majority of patients, but there are some patients where the standard treatments fall short of achieving our goals. And when that happens, we're always looking for new treatments. And the new treatments that we're developing these days are treatments that are, uh, for example, uh, immune therapy, such as monoclonal antibodies, new ones that are being developed. There's a new oral medication about which there's some excitement called venetoclax that can work when some of the standard treatments haven't achieved their goals. And then we have some earlier phase trials, meaning studies that aren't as far along, but look like they could have some promise. And some of those are going on right now. And in 2020, um, we'll be doing one with other centers looking at a medicine that specifically attacks a genetic mutation that occurs in some people with WM called CXCR4. And then there's some wild stuff going on out there as well, such as really phenomenal immune therapy. And for some patients who are in des more desperate need, even something called CAR T-cell therapy. So lots of options available. And, but again, the standard treatments work well for most patients. But if they're not working as well, it's a really good idea to get a second opinion from a WM expert. The next thing that I want to address is how to, how to work with your healthcare team to manage your loved one's uh, WM. And this is really, really, really important for caregivers. And the main thing is to make sure that you feel like you have a good rapport with your team, that there's good open uh, communication. And by team, I mean it's important to identify all key members of the team. It's not the physician. In fact, very often, and this is true in my practice, it's my nurses and my nurse practitioners who are amazing resources for our patients with WM. And you need to make sure that you have a good rapport with all of them because the natural history of WM is uh, survival over many, many, many years, and you have to feel like you have a good team that supports you and listens to you. 
Another good thing is that it's important during appointments to bring extra ears. And by extra ears, that can be a friend or a family member, a spouse, and so forth. And extra ears are really important. And it's also important, I think, to take notes or even record the appointment when necessary because very often the physicians will say, you know, a number of things to patients, often speaking in what I call onco-speak or high language, and, and, and patients can walk out of the appointment and say, I'm not even sure what just happened in there. So it's really important that you bring extra ears and take notes down. Also, even before you come to the visit, you can prepare to make the visit more uh, effective by writing down questions and even identifying any specific goals that you might have from the appointment. I've also had patients do this, and I've also encouraged patients, if there's a particular topic that needs to be addressed, a treatment change or side effects or even goals of care, it's sometimes a good idea to schedule an appointment just to address that particular thing so the doctor doesn't go down their normal path and, and, and not address the things that you think might be important. So those are all good tips, I think, for working with your, with your team. The next thing I want to tackle is what I call symptoms, side effects, and peripheral neuropathy. And this is a big deal for caregivers. And, and one thing is that there's a lot of information, again, through the IWMF. And I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, I did an educational forum talk on side effects from the different chemotherapy agents. And one thing I know for sure is that when you're looking at starting a treatment that involves a chemotherapy drug, it's really, really important to educate yourself as much as you can about potential side effects from chemotherapy. And what I tell my patients when I start them on any chemotherapy is, and I literally say this, this exact phrase, if you have this problem now and you did not have it before, I did it to you. And what I mean by that is that if a patient notices a side effect, there's a really good chance it's related to the medication, and it's not up to the patient or the caregiver to try and sort out whether or not the side effect is due to WM or due to the treatment of the WM or due to something completely altogether unrelated. Your job is to report the side effect and let your treatment team sort through it. One side effect that, gets a lot, that needs to get a lot of attention is that of peripheral neuropathy. And peripheral neuropathy is an issue, it's a, it's a clinical problem where people get pain or numbness or tingling often in their toes or feet, uh, hands, fingers, and so forth. And it can be mild and irritating, or it can be rather debilitating. And so, and the other thing that's tricky about peripheral neuropathy is that in WM, patients can have peripheral neuropathy from the disease or from the treatment. In fact, there's a type of uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy that's very challenging called IgM neuropathy. And very often, these patients with IgM neuropathy don't technically meet the diagnostic criteria for having WM, but we include them in the WM family and they're seen by WM physicians. And so IgM neuropathy is a neuropathy that sometimes progresses slowly over many years, and it's often associated with very low levels of IgM in the blood, very low levels of lymphoma in the bone marrow, often below 10%. And so it's a very ch challenging neuropathy because one, it affects patients, and two, there's not consensus in the WM world that is with the physicians on how best to treat this disease. So that's IgM neuropathy. And one can also, in WM, see neuropathy resulting from some of our treatments. And the treatment in a, that we have in WM that's most associated with peripheral neuropathy is bortezomib, the trade name in the states of which is Velcade. And whenever I treat anybody with Velcade or bortezomib, and this, by the way, is a very effective treatment for WM, I tell them, to be paranoid about neuropathy. That is, 
if the drug is causing neuropathy and you let me know when it's just tingling or numbness or something like that, then there's things that I can do and that your treatment team can do to reduce the, the potential for that getting worse or maybe even have it get better. On the other hand, if patients develop worsening neuropathy and they're not letting the doctor know, then that neuropathy can really take hold and sometimes never get better uh, over the many years that patients survive with this disease. And so again, I tell my patients to be paranoid about neuropathy. And the other thing I tell my patients when I'm treating with bortezomib is that a lot of times patients don't want to report side effects from medications, including bortezomib, because they're afraid that the doctor is going to do something and, and take away an effective treatment. And what I tell my patients is that, no, it's the opposite. My ability to treat you is better if you report to me side effects. That way we can make alterations in the treatment that are required to keep you on the treatment longer and in more effective fashion. So again, if you're not even sure if a symptom that your loved one is experiencing is related to WM to the treatment, you report it and let us sort it out. The last topic that I want to discuss before I turn over is caring for your loved one with WM. What are some tips here? And this is, this is personal for me because I have a family member who cares for uh, a loved one with WM. And so I, I actually called her up and I said, okay, so what, 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 you know, what do you think is important? And there's several things. But one thing that came up that I hadn't thought about is educating your primary care doc. Because the primary care docs are very unlikely to have ever seen somebody with WM before. And so it's, it's, uh, if, if your primary care doc is involved in your care, then let them know about IWMF. There's great information there because most docs uh, don't know very much about WM if they're not uh, hematologists. And so that's one really good point. The next thing is make sure you have a good team. And by a good team, I mean at home and with your provider. So good team at home are those extra ears that we referred to. And with your provider is you have to have a comfort level with your provider because, again, you're going to be going to this provider hopefully for many, many, many years. The other thing that's important about caring for your loved one with WM is the education. And by education, there's so much you can learn through IWMF. We have the educational forum, and there's all kinds of publications, uh, research and focus groups through IWMF. And literally, this is a great resource for me. And I have many patients actually tell me about a side effect that I may not have known about in WM because they heard about it or read about it through IWMF. The next thing that I always tell my patients is that I'm good at a lot of things, but I cannot read minds. And so patients need to be open with their feelings. You need to tell me if something's bother you. Uh, I I say the ostrich strategy, which is burying your head in the sand, is not a good strategy for taking care of somebody with a blood cancer, including WM. And so please, please be open with me. Report side effects. Let me decide uh, uh, how they might relate to, to WM or not. Another really important thing for caregivers to realize is that WM affects patients differently. That is, the person next to you in the office who also has WM may have a completely different constellation of symptoms, a different response to treatment, and so forth. And so know that WM that affects your loved one uh, may do so in a fashion that's quite different than it affects other ones. The other thing that I think that caregivers and patients struggle with is when there are certain symptoms, trying to decide whether or not those symptoms are related to the WM. For example, fatigue. I'm sleeping 10 or 12 hours a day. Is that from my treatment or is that from my WM? Or uh, could I be depressed? Or is there another medical problem going on? Peripheral neuropathy. 
problems with the bowels, swelling, all kinds of different things. So um, it's it's really best to establish that really good communication line with your team. And if something's bothering you or your loved one with WM, then write it down, write down what's going on before you come to the office visit and then report it at the office visit and make sure that you're uh, being listened to. And so those are just some brief uh, overviews on what's going on with treatment and side effects in WM. And with that, I am going to stop and, and uh, listen to the rest of the presentation. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mattis. That was really outstanding. And really, you covered so many different areas, both in terms of treatment and then all the management of side effects and what to be aware of. That is so so helpful. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but just an amazing presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Cusack. Ms. Cusack is an, an oncology nurse. She's Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. Ms. Cusack is going to be addressing taking on the role of caregiving, barriers to adherence, weekends, holidays, vacations, and special occasions, managing family, friends, and traditions, long-distance caregivers, and self-care stress management tips for caregivers. It's really my great pleasure um, and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusek. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'd like to take this opportunity also to welcome all of the participants who are on the call, whether you're a healthcare provider, a person with living with cancer, or a caregiver of someone with cancer, you recognize this is an important role, and I applaud you for finding out more information on the topic. So taking on the role of caregiver, who are caregivers? Caregivers may be somebody who helps the patient with activities of daily living and healthcare needs at home. It includes spouses, partners, children, relatives, or friends. The caregiver is the person um, who works with the healthcare team to improve the patient's health and quality of life. They may do things that used to be done in the hospital or the doctor's office by healthcare providers, may be transferred to family and friends at that point who are caregiving. Um, you're doing everyday tasks such as helping the patient with medicines, doctor's visits, meals, schedules, health insurance matters. So you provide a lot of support, emotional support and spiritual support for our patients. And so we want to be able to help you through that process. When we discuss the role of the caregiver, I always like to take it um, from the stance of discussing shared expectations and how you can best support the patient during this process. You always want to be supportive of the patient, to be there, to be their best advocate. Um, as the physician mentioned earlier, open communication is the key. So you should have a discussion with the patient about what their goals of care are and what their wishes are. You may not agree necessarily with every decision that they make, but remember that this is their journey and you're a big part of it, but ultimately the decision belongs to them. You'll want to be there to assist them in asking questions about scheduling, side effects, and who to reach out to for additional resources, how to navigate the system, how to find out about financial assistance, and all of those different things. Cancer Care has a really nice fact sheet that it is meant for, um, it's, it's entitled, um, What Can I Say to the Newly Diagnosed Loved One? And your person might be newly diagnosed or they may be somebody that you've just recently taken over the care for, but they have some nice tips about being supportive um, of the of the patient um, when somebody's diagnosed with cancer in general. And so the biggest take-home points are that 
The first one is to listen. Again, it's often a challenge when somebody's facing a life-threatening diagnosis. So you want to try to listen without judging, without cheerleading. Your you know, ability to be able to just sit there with them and share feelings with them, probably one of the most beneficial, significant contributions you can make. And just thinking about with WM patients, again, they go through the whole gamut. And because there are so many different stages there, you know, you're going to be supporting them in different ways over a long period of time with this chronic illness. You want to give advice only when asked. So um, people often take on the task of researching the diagnosis or different treatment options, different clinical trials, helping them, you know, and being supportive and providing them with that information. Um, Again, you do want to educate yourself about cancer, and cancer care is an awesome resource for that, as is the um, as is the foundation. And so, you want to be able to pull literature and be able to really educate yourself about the various areas and treatments, side effects, and other related concerns for that. You want to support your loved one's treatment decisions. You want to remember to take care of yourself, and we'll go over some tips for managing stress in just a minute. And then you also want to stay connected. So cancer treatments can be very lengthy, and the journey can go for a period of time. So you often want to make sure that you're just, you know, touching base periodically. If you're not the primary caregiver, that you're able to touch base and just let them know that you're there and that you want to be supportive. And you want to keep things as normal as possible. Oftentimes we try to make life so easy for the person going through the cancer by doing things for them. And it's a way of, you know, of feeling useful at the time when we may otherwise feel helpless. However, sometimes we just want to be able to make sure that we're respecting their wishes um, to do kind of some of the normal pre-cancer tasks that they used to do that they want to still continue to try to do. And, you know, it's sometimes easy to jump in and um, and help and, you know, but you want to allow them to have that independence and some of that control with that. You want to be receptive to their needs when the treatment is over. This is often the time when they begin to start to process the enormity of what's been happening through the treatment. Um, you know, prior to this, you were deeply involved, and um, and they were deeply involved and very distracted by all the medical concerns. So you just want to, again, touch base periodically to make sure you're there for them. And let them know. You know, always tell them, you know, you can count on me to help out and we're going to get through this together so that they realize that there are support systems there for them. When we talk about adherence, we talk about, and this is especially important when you're taking oral agents. It's important when you're taking IV agents also, but when you're taking oral agents and you're taking it home, there are specific things that you need to remember about that in terms of adherence. Some cancer treatment pills, um, you know, are taken on an empty stomach. Others are taken with a certain amount of food or liquid. Um, you want to make sure that you know from the healthcare team how the medication should be taken. And so every medication is different. Every medication is absorbed differently, tolerated differently. So you want to know for yourself what you need to take, how you need to take it. Are there any precautions with taking certain medications and different things like that? Um, if you're an early riser in the morning or do you like to sleep in late, so you want to be able to plan ahead with your medications to make sure that you're taking them when you first wake up um, or that you're at your bedside so that you're not missing doses, if at all possible. With a brutinib, it's a medication that's taken once a day, and you may be taking, you know, one to four capsules at once, depending on your prescribed dose. And so you want to take it at the approximately the same time of day. You want to take it exactly as prescribed. You want to make sure that you're swallowing it whole with at least eight ounces of water, uh, you do not want to crush it or open it or chew it or dissolve it. 
Um, do not change the dose. And the biggest thing I always tell patients is not to stop the drug ab abruptly. If you're having side effects from the medication, call your treatment team and let them know what's going on, and then they will let you know what you need to do with the treatment and whether you need to stop it for a period of time or whether they need to change the dose or whatever needs to happen with that. And that's especially true when you start getting side effects. Um, from the particular medications. And, you know, I try to do this as I, I'm talking a little bit about abrutinib now, but I really, you know, with oral agents in general, you want to adhere to a lot of those same recommendations. Um, you want to make sure you're drinking plenty of fluids with the medication. Um, don't throw, you know, don't throw anything out. Um, let your team know, you know, if you're not able to take certain medications and things like that. In terms of um, just some general suggestions, um, you know, getting organized pill boxes are very helpful to keep pills in order. If you're taking a lot of other medications, you might need two pill boxes depending on if you have other, um, other conditions besides that. You want to create a medication checklist that you have so that each time you go to your doctor, whether it's your oncologist or whether it's your primary doctor, you can update them on the current medications that you're taking. Um, so that they have that information. You want to make sure that you establish a routine, as I said, to take the pills and stick the same thing every day with that. Um, if you're going to be going on trips for just short trips, a couple of days, um, you may want to, you know, again, try to stay on the same schedule. Um, you want to use an alarm or a watch if you have problems reminding yourself to take the medication at a certain time. And make sure that if you do go away that you take a couple of extra doses with you when you're traveling just in case you were to lose a pill or drop a pill or something like that just so that you have extra medication with you while you are traveling. When we talk about managing family, friends, and traditions, um, one of the things, again, you know, sometimes cancer patients are not up to doing certain activities if they're having some fatigue or if they're having a lot of neuropathies or if they're having any pain. And so you want to make sure that you help them to be able to prioritize things. And so having family members visit maybe for shorter periods of time to allow them to get more rest. Uh, remember to take, have them take breaks during the holidays and on special occasions. I know we just went through Christmas and New Year's, and so that's a very, very busy time for patients and for caregivers. And so hopefully people were able to have at least some rest periods during that time. You want to try to do something outside of the house for yourself as the caregiver just because, you know, if you're spending all your time doing the caregiving, you're, it's going to stress you out and you're going to um, get sick yourself. And so we want you to think about doing that. We want you to identify foods that the patient likes and dislikes. So that if you have friends who maybe want to cook one night or um, bring something over or just um, provide some food, then you can have them do that. You know, you don't have to be the person that – does all of that for the patient. You can depend on friends and family, hopefully, to be able to, to help you with that. Um, and you may even want to assign a friend to coordinate meals. Sometimes people don't know how they can help best, and so they appreciate if you give them something to do. So if you just tell them certain things you want them to do, a lot of times that's very helpful. If you're a long-distance caregiver you want to be able to, and you want to be able to stay in touch, one of the best ways you can do that is to um, be willing to, you know, be the one to uh, maybe coordinate medical medical appointments for your um, for your family member. You know, take some of that pressure off. Maybe the person that's right there at home. I know when my mom was um, going through treatment and and different things, my sister lived far away, and 
really wanted to be involved, and so I was able to help her to, or ask her to do some of those types of things to really help out with that. You may want to be the person that updates family members and friends. So at the end of the day, there's some um, there's some websites, one called Caring Bridge or other sites that. Um, you know, you can update for your family, and that could be a site that your family members go to to get updates. You can also, you know, if people still have landlines, you can put messages, um, you know, on the landline for specific people, you know, that may want to call in and find out how things are going and and different things like that. You just need to be careful and make sure you talk to your caregiver about that make sure they're on board with that. Um, keeping track of paperwork and bills or even coordinating transportation and meal delivery services, prescription refills, and different things like that. So there's a lot of different things that you can that you can do um, for that in terms of being able to help from a distance with that. And then the last topic that I want to cover is self-care tips for managing stress. And so you always want to remember that your health and wellness are as important as your loved one, and your loved one wants and needs you to be healthy also during this time. So we do encourage you to take time for yourself and try to do that at least every day at some point during the day. And it can be such things as, you know, just when you get up in the morning, do a little meditation or just take some time for yourself to do some journaling or just try to to be in the moment just to be able to take a little bit of time um, the NCI actually does a nice job. They have three tips for caregiver self-care. So, again, the first thing is scheduling self-care. So each day or week, make time to focus on your needs. Make it a priority by scheduling a one-hour appointment for yourself. Um, if you want to go get a massage or if you want to go to the gym and get some exercise, if you want to go shopping, have coffee with a friend, or just time to take a nap. Sometimes that's all you need is time to be able to rest and take a nap. So, you know, that schedule time will rejuvenate you and help you to be able to make your own health and, and mental health and physical health a priority for you. Um, for any activities that incorporate a consistent routine, you want to make sure you stay in the moment and enjoy yourself. And then you want to write down for yourself, and this is, um, you know, this is very important, being able to write down for yourself positive qualities. So, so showing yourself some self-love by writing down the qualities that make you a great caregiver in person. This can help to build your self-esteem, help you to stay motivated, um, you know, and really try to help you to uh, be, you know, really recognize the value that you have in this whole situation. And then making a self-care emergency plan, which having a plan to help you when you're feeling overwhelmed. And so, again, it can be very difficult at times to think about doing stuff for yourself, and this plan will help you to stay calm and be able to stay into control. So, again, writing down some activities that do help you to relax. There's a variety of different apps out there, the Calm app and some other apps that you can get that do have meditation sessions on them to be able to help you. Um, for spirituality, you can seek out support from your local church or pastoral services um, for that. You want to prioritize sleep, try to take frequent rest periods, and schedule somebody else to come in occasionally to stay at night so that you can get a good night's rest or just even coming for a couple of hours during the day to be able to help you with that. Um, you can look into getting the um, the family medical leave program for work and knowing that there are services available to assist you. So the FEMLAW program allows 12 weeks of leave, paid or unpaid, to be used to care for family members. So that's an option if you, you know, need to take some time off from work to be able to participate in the care. 
And then, again, practicing gratitude every day. Try to be thankful for what you have. It's a difficult time, so it's difficult sometimes to think about that. But there have been a lot of studies out there that demonstrated that gratitude does help to improve your attitude and your immune system. I spoke about journaling earlier. There's also a variety of um, YouTube videos and CDs, um, things that play flute and piano music or just relaxing music to help you relax a little bit. The American Cancer Society has a distress checklist and a coping checklist for caregivers so that you can kind of spot check yourself to see where you are on that distress scale and to see how you can improve your stress. Um, the National Cancer Institute has a caring for the caregiver um, thing on their website where they where they discuss that. And then Cancer Care has a lot of tips for caregiving for a loved one with cancer during the holidays. And I think the biggest thing to remember, again, is remember that you are an important member of the healthcare team and you need to take care of yourself so that you can better take care of the patient. It's been a pleasure to participate in this conference and I'm going to turn it back over to you, Dr. Mesner, and I'm happy oh. to entertain any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kusak. That was really outstanding and really wonderful and really covering a really wide gamut of areas um, for caregivers to be aware of and to and to really think about in terms of really having some time for themselves, to take care of themselves, um, and also um, so very helpful. I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mr. Carl Harrington. Now, Mr. Harrington is chair, IWMF Board of Trustees, International Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia Foundation, or WM Foundation, IWMF Foundation. Now, Mr. Harrington has been critically important in are offering these programs as a collaboration. Um, I have to say um, he and his staff are really the architects of this program, and I, I am so grateful to be able to work with, um, with Mr. Harrington. And he will describe to you um, many of the programs and resources and conferences of IWMF. Um, some of you may know of them, but some of you may not, and um, I can't think of a better person to do that. So I'm uh, I'm honored and privileged to turn this pro program over to my very esteemed colleague, um, Mr. Harrington. Well, thank you for those very kind words, Carolyn. On behalf of all WMers, a huge thank you to both of our presenters uh, for providing such clear information in a way that we could all understand. Now, I say we because, um, like most of you listening, I'm also a WM patient, and my wife, Ellie, is my caregiver. Now, the IWF is dedicated to a simple but compelling vision – that is a world without WM. We're going to accomplish this vision through a fanatical devotion to our mission, which is to support and educate everyone affected by WM while we advance the search for a cure. And that everyone most definitely includes both patients and caregivers. Now, as I said, I'm a WM patient. I was diagnosed in 2006 and joined the IWF board in 2010. And like you, I remember all those early questions Oh, you know, little things like, am I going to die? Are my kids going to get this? What did I do wrong to get this? How long do I have to live? That initial period is really a frightening time. Now let me shift gears just a bit and have you think of the first name of our disease. You probably didn't even think we did have a first name, but what I'm talking about is the name Waldenstrom's. Now if you think about Waldenstrom's and just move the R and the O around, Waldenstrom's becomes Waldenstorm's. That's what it's like to have Waldenstrom's. There are always storms on the horizon, Walden storms. What do I mean by a Walden storm? That could be anything, like a relapse and finding out you need to choose a new treatment. 
It could be, uh, you know, what a, a, a worsening symptom like peripheral neuropathy. It could be a worsening side effect like AFib or itchiness. Or it could be you wondering just how you and your family can possibly afford the new treatments you need. No matter what the issue or concern is, turn to the IWMF. With the IWMF, you are never alone. Although WM is a rare disease, thanks to our dedicated volunteers and office staff, the IWMF is available to help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Call us, email us, chat with each other. Just reach out for support and information whenever you need it. We have affiliates in 20 countries outside the U.S. that cover about half the world's population. We have over 65 support groups globally. We have a network of volunteers on Lifeline you can talk to one-on-one on the phone. Our materials are translated into seven languages and are available for free on our website. And our website at www.iwmf.com can be viewed in over 100 languages via Google Translate. Disease facts or someone to talk to are only a click on your computer or a telephone call away. If you need information, if you need support, we're here for you 24-7 with real human support from fellow WMers. With the IWMF, you are never alone. Never. Now, as you just heard, there are very exciting times for WM patients right now. We're closer than ever to a cure with better treatments for WM with fewer side effects and longer remissions. Now, you may be wondering, why do we have so many new drugs and how come there's so much interest in a rare disease like WM? Well, it's because of what we've done together. Since 1999, the IWM has funded over $16 million in WM research and over 48 specific projects across the globe. Every single one of those dollars has come from WM patients, family, and friends. So if you haven't already, please ask your family and friends to help you support the IWMF so we can create a world without WM and definitely a world without Walden storms. On behalf of WMers everywhere, Thank you to our presenters, and thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Cancer Care, for your help and support today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Harrington. That was really outstanding, and um, it's such a great resource for everybody um, to have you and to have the IWF um, organization there for for everyone, and so many resources there, So um, and so many support groups as well, many, many throughout the country and world, it sounds like, so it's just amazing. Um, so um, we're going to be taking questions shortly, and before we do that, I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to move right into the questions, and we'll explain to you how to queue up for questions, um, so um, so you can either jot them down or think about what you'd like to ask. Um, so cancer care is a national organization, and we have a staff of over 30 oncology social workers um, on staff. And we provide a lot of different services um, from very practical and financial assistance and resource information to uh, counseling services. And we are uh, very accessible in terms of on the phone or online. Most most people contact us on our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, or come to our website, www.cancercare.org. And by the way, all of the information that we give out today will be available to you when you get your evaluation from us, probably on Monday. You'll get an evaluation for the program today. And on the, it'll be an evaluation, but it's not just an evaluation. It also includes all the resource information that we think would be useful to um, you to have, so that they'll be sure you have it right in front of you as well. Um, and um, 
so we do provide a chance to talk with some of our staff here, um, our oncology staff, um, about your concerns or questions, um, about just even some personal issues about talking with children, perhaps about your grandchildren, about not feeling well, or um, if those of you are working, you know, how do you handle the workplace when you're having um, when you're when you have Waldenstrom's, how do you deal with that? Um, and so many different questions that people um, come up with. Um, we also offer telephone and online support groups, um, and those are very uh, popular. I think a lot of people, some people like to talk to people individually, but others like to be in a group of people who have similar issue, concerns. And I know that IWMF has a number of groups already out there, so your needs may be met by many of their groups, but just to be aware of that as well. We have groups for people of all different ages as well, and services for both young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, caregivers, um, and different family member groupings, partners. So really um, something for everybody. We have a Cancer Care for Kids program, really helping uh, children where there's cancer, where there's cancer in the family and Walton's traumas in the family, um, helping children understand um, what their feelings are. Often children are, you know, people are so busy taking care of the person with cancer, it's hard to know what to say to children or teens or young adults sometimes. Um, so those are a snapshot of some of the services that we offer. Of course, we offer these programs. And I should tell you all, and I'll announce it at the end as well, that we do have another program coming up, actually very soon. It's on March 19th, um, and it'll be um, really an update on... Um, on, on WM, um, actually, and so it'll be a chance to hear a whole medical presentation. Um, Dr. Mattis gave really a, a great presentation today, so you'll just have twice of Dr. Mattis on the program, I suppose. Um, the latest news in the treatment of Waldenstrom's at WM, so that'll be coming up on, on March 19th, and you'll be getting details about that, all of you on the call today. Um, and I think now we're going to move on to questions. I'm going to ask... Um, our wonderful moderator, Norma, to explain to you how to cure up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if you would bring all of our speakers on board as well. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star 1. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so um, for Dr. Mattis, um, so what is the best protocol to ask for a change of doctor from a hematologist currently treating to the Walden, to WM specialist within the institution? How, how, what's the best way to do that? Within an institution, within did I understand that correctly, Carolyn? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So this this could also this this holds for really any any patient in any medical condition. If 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 you think there might be somebody else at the institution where you're receiving care with whom you may have better rapport or who be more who might be more of an expert, that I think the best thing to do is just be very honest with your team. And and sometimes it's not the doctor, you know, when you're trying to change change doctors. I know at our place, uh, very often patients will approach our social workers or the nurses 
because there are 10 physicians where I work, and sometimes people just mesh better with one physician than with another. And, 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 and physicians should not be hurt or be resistant to patients wanting to change to other physicians within the group because at the end of the day, it's all about making sure the patient feels the most comfortable and gets, gets his or her best care. So I would recommend um, if you if you're, have a good relationship with your treatment team, just bring it up with your treatment team. If not, there's always someone in the clinic, uh, a nurse, uh, a patient rep, a, a director of the clinic, and so forth, uh, with whom these questions can be brought up, and you won't be the only one bringing up that question. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone else want to add to that as well? Okay. That's a very comprehensive answer then. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and another question um, for Dr. Mattis. Um, what are the treatment options for a young patient, 38 years old, with significant peripheral neuropathy but a moderate IgM level, 150 on average over the last eight months, and has been on ibrutinib for approximately six months with little response? If you could answer that, Dr. Mattis, in a general way, of course. Sure, sure. The one thing, when I'm dealing with a peripheral neuropathy with Waldenstrom's, I do make a distinction between what I term IgM neuropathy and neuropathy associated with Waldenstrom's. And again, IgM neuropathy typically is a low IgM, and when the bone marrow is done, very often there's a low, very low percentage of Waldenstrom cells in the bone marrow. And so technically they have a diagnosis of what's called MGUS, but they also have peripheral neuropathy, so we call them IgM neuropathy. The other group are those patients who have clear-cut symptomatic Waldenstrom's. They have a higher lymphoma burden in their marrow, maybe a higher IgM, and they also have neuropathy. So in the former group, when there's clear-cut Waldenstrom's with peripheral neuropathy, then I treat the Waldenstrom's. And, then, and, and I avoid using, almost always using bortezomib because that can cause neuropathy. So the treatment options, again, it would either be a brutinib with or without rituxan, or in our country, a combination of bendamustine plus rituximab. And very often for neuropathy, I think the most important thing is to try and get the best response possible. And so I tend to be more in a young person uh, aggressive with my treatment and go to bendamustine. That's just my bias. Now, the, the data for a brutinib and peripheral neuropathy are there are some, but there's no there's no clear cut association between treating neuropathy and the success with a brutinib. There are just there, it happens, but we don't know exactly how a brutinib matches up to other treatments for WM with peripheral neuropathy. Now, when we're treating IgM neuropathy, that's a different ballgame. So if we're treating IgM neuropathy, typically what we'll do is we'll use other treatments such as intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG, for example, or rituximab. And there's no clear uh, consensus around the world on how to address these IgM neuropathies with treatment. They're very frustrating uh, for patients to deal with and also for clinicians. There clearly is a room to get better. My last comment regarding neuropathy will be it's always really important if somebody has IgM and neuropathy to make sure that this isn't a neuropathy caused by something called amyloidosis. Amyloidosis is a complication that befalls maybe 8 or 10% of WM patients, and it's been addressed in the IWMF publication called The Torch by two of the world's, two of the planet's uh, greatest experts in this uh, in this complication, Drs. Merlini and Dr. Gertz. And so anyone who 
is at all interested in knowing more about amyloid who has it, I would refer you to those publications in the Torch. Excellent. Thank you. And that's a wonderful magazine by the IWS, so that's definitely a resource. And for those of you who aren't getting it regularly, um, Carl, do you want to comment on how they can sign up for that? Yes, you can either do it online or just call the office and, and, okay. and say well, you want to be you want to start getting the torch. Excellent. And you have we'll provide all those numbers again um, at the um, when you get the evaluation or at the end of the call, so you'll be able to do that. Excellent. And we have some telephone questions. So Norma. Um, Thank you. Our first question comes from Rita G. Your line is open. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much. This was so informative. I loved it. I have a daughter who just was diagnosed, and uh, it's very frightening. I would like to know exactly what that phone number was that ended in 4673. Oh, that was um, Cancer Care's phone number. It's um, 800 813 Thank you so much. And the website again? It's www.cancercare.org. Okay, fantastic. And I also, Keep up the I also, great work. Well, thank you, but I also want to give you the numbers for um, IWMF as well, um, actually, um, uh, because they're a wonderful resource as well. So their website is www.iwmf.com. Okay. And their phone number is 941-941-927-4673. Thank you so much. And so you can sign up for that newsletter, and you also can call them, and you can call us, and they're free services. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This is very helpful. And, okay. Thank you. And um, our next question. Francine V., your line is open. Thank you. I'm calling uh, because I do have MGUS, and my IgM right now is about 850. And I go six, every six months to the doctor, and every time my IgM goes up about 50 points. And I'd like to know at what point, the, uh, what number the IgM usually is before treatment begins, because I haven't been having any treatment. I did have a, a bone biopsy, though. That, that's a great question and a very common question. And so the one thing is that in Waldenstrom's, the IgM is a number that we track, but the IgM by itself doesn't determine who needs treatment and who doesn't need treatment. And I'll give you an example. I have patients who have IgMs of 600, which isn't too high, who have debilitating fatigue. And on the other end of the spectrum, I have patients with IgM of, IgMs of 6,000 who have absolutely no symptoms and aren't getting treated. So we track the IgM level, and actually if the IgM level gets high enough, then sometimes we call patients smoldering instead of MGUS. But the reasons for initiating treatment, uh, none of those reasons really have to do with the IgM itself. They have to do with whether or not patients have other signs or symptoms such as fatigue, anemia, a general feeling of not feeling well, and so forth. And so uh, you're, you're doing what I call MGUSing, uh, you're just sort of percolating along there with your IgM, and uh, and the big thing is to be aware of the reasons for initiating treatment, uh, and ma- and just make sure that you're not checking off any of those boxes. 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, a question for you, Dr. Mattis, from one of our online participants now. My husband has WM, and prior to his diagnosis last spring, he liked to swim. However, his oncologist discouraged him from swimming in a, in a public pool since his retreatment, his treatment and immune system being compromised. He's currently on a brutinib maintenance. What do you think about swimming for WM patients? <laughs> okay, now we're getting into things for which physicians have no data, and every physician will have his or her own opinion about what to do uh, and, and the do's and what I call the do's and the don'ts. And the thing is, if I'm going to, going to put somebody on a long-term treatment, so when I give somebody a brutinib the, and the patient says, how long, for how long do I need to take this, the next thing they say, is it forever? And I say, well, it's going to be for a very long time. And, and our treatment goal should not just be to control our WM, but to control it with really good quality of life really good quality of life. And part of really good quality of life, in my opinion, is to have patients do what makes them feel whole. And so swimming in a public pool, personally, I don't, I don't worry about that. Swimming in a cesspool might get my attention. And so, uh, but these are, every physician has his or her comfort levels too, right? And, and patients need to realize that a lot of times physicians are are just expressing expressing their own anxieties, and that may not be they may not be substantiated by any research or facts or publications. Excellent. Does anyone want to add to that? Or okay, excellent. Um, Nurses probably get that question more than the physicians, I would guess. I don't know. Does it ever come up for you, um, uh, Ms. Kusak? Is that ever? Yeah, I mean, I think it does, and I think again, I I agree with you, and I think that you know, as long as the as long as the pool is you know maintained well and chlorinated and different things like that, which most most pools are, I think that it's fine, and I think that um, I mean we do usually defer to the to the docs for that, just to, but you know usually we have guidelines set for that, and we have similar guidelines for that that I think that uh, you know people can adhere to as long as it's in a you know in a well maintained pool. Excellent, excellent point. And um, another question for Dr. Mattis um, regarding bendamustine. We have been told by one doctor and by one doctor that when on bendamustine, you cannot fly. You always need to be within 30 minutes, um, 30 minutes of an ER in case you experience a flash fever. Another doctor said, no, it is gentle chemo, and flying or traveling a distance from a hospital is fine. Any opinion on this? Again, if you could answer this um, in a general way, uh, just because yeah. of a... So the, the big issue with bendamustine is that in some patients, not all, in some patients after each treatment, and these treatments, by the way, are given every four weeks in the vein. So two doses are given two days in a row. It's repeated every four weeks, four to six times. That's a typical bendamustine treatment. In some patients, but not all, about 7 to 12 to 14 days after they receive the chemotherapy drug, their white blood cell count may become low, rendering the patient at an increased risk for infection. So in, in general, it's only during that time and only if we know that your white count's low where we really need to take some special precautions. My patients often ask me, when's a good time for me to take a trip or do something? I always say 
It's the 10 to 14 days before your next chemotherapy treatment. It's the best time to go. And so, and it is mainly a factor of whether or not your white blood count is too low from the chemotherapy. And again, in bendamustine, in many patients, it doesn't lower to that point. And so it's a matter of knowing your white blood count and talking to your team and just pinning them down on the details of, of when you really uh, need to be more careful. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone question. Um, Norma? Joyce Kay, your line is open. Uh, yes. I was recently diagnosed about three weeks ago with Waldenstrom's at the Dana-Farber Clinic, and at its very early stage, but I've had a lot of peripheral neuropathy over the last year, actually, or so, and fatigue coming on, so I was diagnosed at first with MGUS, and now they have proven through the uh, bone marrow that I do have Waldenstrom's, like 10% or so. And I've been reading about uh, if they can't prove that this neuropathy is coming from the Waldenstrom's by the anti-mag test, et cetera, and I know that's a little complicated, but uh, Dr. Hoffman was recommending temporary plasmapheresis to see if it improves your legs to know if then a treatment might affect you with Waldenstrom's, might help you. Yeah. Is yeah. that a, a, a logical way to go as opposed to IVIG? And yeah, that's a that's again to go back on these IgM neuropathies. When we have our physician WM conferences, there are usually several hours devoted to IgM neuropathies. And our last meeting was in the fall of 2018. And I have to tell everyone that I walked out of that conference saying, I, I don't know if I'm any smarter how to treat this disease, this IgM neuropathy. There are a lot of ways to go at it. But what's been seen, first of all, you've been seen at a great place for your WM. And the next thing is, in WM, very often we will do uh, sort of an experimental, if you will, uh, or a, a just a, a, a brief treatment trial, plasmapheresis, because what that does is it removes the IgM pretty rapidly from the blood. And if the IgM has been perpetrating the neuropathy, very often patients will say, hey, I'm a little bit better. And if that's the case, then it might give you more, might provide more of an impetus to then treat a certain way. But there is, again, no consensus about who should get IVIG, who should get rituxan, uh, and, and, and other treatments that fall off after that. But the short answer to your question is that, yes, sometimes we do recommend plasmapheresis as a way to see whether or not the IgM is perpetrating the neuropathy. Thank you. Um, and um, Norma, the next question. The next question is from Catherine N. Your line is open. Yes, hi. My question was regarding uh, having the flu shot or the pneumonia shot and whether or not it could have any type of protection at all if your patient has full-blown WM. Um, Dr. could you address that? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a strong advocate of the flu vaccination. So our WM patients will not have the same level of protection from a flu shot that patients who have healthy normal immune systems get, but any is better than none. And so the flu shot certainly does not make my patients ill. You can't get the flu from the killed flu vaccination that is the injected one, and so I'm a strong proponent of it. There's some data out there, and you'll encounter this um, sometimes if you dig around, that in some patients 
uh, with suppressed immune systems who have either myeloma or Waldenstrom's, that two flu shots given one month apart uh, might provide even more protection. That's not a uniform recommendation by any means, but patients do encounter this when they research on the web. And for anyone who's really curious, there's a publication by a physician in Boston named Andrew Brannigan, and the study that he did to show this is called Shivering 2, which is a great name for a research study about the flu shot, Shivering 2. And so I am a big uh, advocate of not just the flu shot, but also the pneumonia shots. Some response to the vaccine is better than none. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And this is an important question that's probably on everyone's mind. And, and we have um, another question, Norma. Lisa L., your line is open. Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am the spouse of a recently diagnosed um, Waldenstrom patient. My husband was diagnosed with MGUS back in June of 2012. Unfortunately, he is now full-blown Waldenstrom being treated. Um, his situation was where it was then detected into his kidney with that gamma lama. I don't know how to pronounce that. He had a bone marrow and a kidney biopsy. And now, unfortunately, his, through the treatments he received, um, doctor mentioned Valcade or um, the generic name for it. Um, he was hospitalized three times with highly um, susceptible, almost deadly complications of lung um, issues. He had pneumonia and shingles in the lungs, and he no longer is able to take the Valcade. And he had since um, had to go on kidney dialysis. So he is now on a treatment of cytoxin. So I'm kind of trying to give him some hope that this new regimen is going to be more tolerable. Um, Again, not faulting the doctor, but we had to travel. We live in Florida. We had to travel to Tampa, to Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, you were talking earlier in the call about having that rapport. We, we blindly trusted the doctors going in from the initial diagnosis, unfortunately. And question, and, and yeah, my question is about the cytoxin. Is this a more kidney-friendly treatment, and do you see good outcomes with it? It sounds you know. like he, that your husband has a much more significant case of WM, and I'm sorry that you guys are going through all that. But cytoxan is a medicine that does get used in WM. It gets used a lot more in Europe than it does in the States, and it's often combined with rituxan. Uh, it's a very common combination, and it is kidney-friendly. And so, um, but I think you uh, are wise when things aren't going well, to try and locate a specialist for some further input, if you can. So but that would be is an old drug, but we do use it. And that would be at um, the Moffitt Cancer Center, which would be the probably Doctor Boz or something like that. Yeah. Doctor, do you want to um, yeah. give her the name of the doctor? Is that Doctor Boz? Is that? Okay. Moffitt's a good place. Yeah, Moffitt is is the NCI. It's an NCI designated cancer center, so it definitely would be. And although there may be a bit of travel, it's it probably worth it. And or at least to call them and have them and talk with and, someone there. And everyone should yeah, know if you, that if you look on the IW, good Carl. Everyone should know that the WM docs are very accustomed to working with other cancer docs who don't see as much WM for coordinating care and. And Carl will tell you this, pretty much everyone who's involved with WM as a doc 
is enthusiastic about participating in any way to help with the care of patients out there. And Carl, did you want to say something as well? Well, I was going to say is if you go on the IWF website, www.iwf.com, and look under uh, uh, support, you'll you'll see our list of physicians that are for second uh, second opinions, and you'll see uh, the docs at Moffitt that are, that are on that list. So I suggest you go there. Oh, thank you, and Carlin, we're going to put that in the evaluation too, so everyone will have it, and everyone can kind of check that. That really makes a difference for people to have that. Um, there is one. Two last questions, and they will be the last two questions we'll be able to take. Um, so the first of the last two questions is, um, for, again, these are for Dr. Mattis. Um, if, if spleen is markedly enlarged, in my case 20 centimeters, does this typically require immediate uh, treatment? Can it increase the chance of it turning into a more aggressive lymphoma? Again, in general. The spleen, the spleen is just a fancy lymph node, if you think about it. And in Waldenstrom's or in other lymphomas, the spleen can sometimes enlarge because the lymphoma is uh, is occupying it. And so uh, the spleen, usually if the spleen gets big enough, there are other symptoms that sort of say, yeah, it's time to treat it. Sometimes people will notice some discomfort up in the left upper part of their abdomen, or they'll develop a little anemia or a low platelet count. And so the spleen being large by itself isn't necessarily a reason to treat, and is rarely a reason only by itself to treat. But if it gets big enough, it's often associated with other symptoms where if, there, if there's not treatment, it might be around the corner. Okay. And this last question, um, what can be done in case of heavy sweats almost every night? Um, my treatment started, my treatment... I guess we'll just leave it at that question. I can't read the rest of this online. Yeah, sweats, so. sweats, sweating can be a very difficult symptom to um, to figure out when you're the doc. And sweating sometimes is clearly related to the lymphoma. And when that happens, these are usually fairly drenching sweats. People often describe having to change their pajamas or sleep with a towel. And when you're seeing that, it's, like, it's pretty obvious that's the Wallenstrom's, and those patients require treatment. But a lot of patients have sweats that aren't as severe, and particularly women who are postmenopausal, it can be really, really challenging to figure out if the sweats are due to the Waldenstrom's or not. And so um, it's, it's a real challenge, and I have to admit there are many times, and I'll just scratch my head and say, I'm tell my patient I'm really not sure what's driving this. But sometimes it's really obvious, and sometimes it's not. Excellent. Thank you. And actually, I guess what I couldn't read was that no treatment started, so that perfect answer to that. Okay, so to really... Yeah, and but if I have a patient where I'm really convinced the sweats are from the Wallenstroms, that patient is gonna, going to likely need treatment. Mm -hmm. And then there is one more, which probably is, we've already covered it, but for Carl, maybe out of time for questions, just wanted for those that want a second opinion with a WM oncologist, does MF maintain a list of recommended cancer centers in the USA? And um, Carl, if you just want to say that again, so people really hear it again, and they will put it, of course, in the evaluation as well. Yes, we do have a, uh, not just a U.S. list, but an international list, and uh, we'll send that to you. You can put it in the evaluation. I believe there's something like between 45 and 50 doctors on that list right now around and the world. And cancer centers as well. It would include the center yes. as well. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a phenomenal call. I want to actually thank our speakers, first of all. You've been 
amazing. This is an incredible call. I want to also thank our participants for asking such important questions for each of you. And we hope the information that you received from your questions will help you to go back to treating healthcare team and actually um, have uh, perhaps more of an informed discussion with them or even seek a second opinion. In some instances, we've heard that as well, but that you will feel like you would just know a little bit more about um, you know, about what you want to ask, and um, so we hope that information is helpful to you. We also, for those of you who did ask a question or those who were listening, we would never want to circumvent your healthcare team. So whatever you've learned, you can feel comfortable going back to the healthcare team with what you understood from the question you asked, and you can certainly ask them a question related to what you asked here. Sometimes um, asking a question on this program is a bit of a role play of asking one of your physicians. We also know that many of you like to go to credible sites to get more information. So the site that we really are recommending for today's program is the IWF site. And again, I'm going to give it to you, www.iwf.com. And they also have a number to call, one nine four one nine two seven four. Nine six three, and again, that will be sent to you in the evaluations, and that will information will be available to you. They do have a listing of physicians and centers that you can go to, so you can check and see what they are. And as Doctor, as as Mr. Harrington said very clearly, that um, that there many of these WM physicians are very willing to work with your your physician as well in helping. So that's important to just tuck that away and know that that's really important. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We do know that you feel alone sometimes. That's the normal feeling to feel, of course. But that technically you do have resources out there for you and to take advantage of them. And many of them are free resources to call, IWMF, Cancer Care. Um, you know, these are resources that you would want to call. I have to say to IWMF, this is their special area of expertise, and definitely you would want to contact them. They're a terrific group for us to be collaborating with and for you to be working with yourselves. Um, we do have a program coming up, I mentioned earlier, on Thursday, March 19th, latest news in the treatment of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, or WM. And so many of you, we just it's just been finalized today. It's on our website, and we will be sending you the link to it so that you can actually, and, w, and the IDMF Foundation will be doing the same, so that you can begin to look at that program. And if, you, if it's convenient for you to register for it, we hope you will. And I do also want to mention that we have a five-part series called Life with Cancer, a Guide for, to Getting the Best Care. And it covers a lot of the issues around decision-making um, and around just the general topics and I would the cost of care, um, and those might be of interest to you as well. So with that being said, you'll be getting all this information from us anyway. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you're an extraordinary group. We hope you've learned things that will be useful to you in your care. And um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.